The saying goes, uh, some people's trash is other people's treasure. Um, I'm not really one for garage sales. Uh, my sister, my, surprising, right? My sister loves garage sales. Um, I don't even want my junk, uh, let alone do I want anyone else's junk. Um, but nonetheless, there are times in which uh, we experience in life that something that's discarded by some people, something that's rejected, no longer wanted by some, is valued and cherished by others. So I'm not into garage sales or uh, really thrifting or anything like that. So of course, I asked our expert thrifters and dumpster divers, uh, the Pabst, what was probably their favorite thing they've ever found um, that was someone else's garbage, essentially, in some shape or form. And Liz found a four-foot sword in a dumpster. That's her prized dumpster find. And Adrian found a Miller Genuine Draft neon light that was abandoned in their basement and now is displayed prominently on the refrigerator. He sent me a picture. They, they sent me pictures, too, and it is quite nice. Um, Jesus, though, was also of the rejected sort and despised and, sort of say, put to the trash. Um, and although at times, as I just showed, sometimes we value things that are so discarded, uh, in Jesus' case and for early Christianity, this would have posed a significant problem. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, where he talks about how the gospel is foolish by human standards, that it's actually a stumbling block to Jewish people. Why? Um, because for a, for a Jewish person, uh, for, a, for someone to be crucified and to be hung on a tree is for them to be cursed by God, as Deuteronomy said. And it, it is a seeming oxymoron for the Messiah to be cursed by God. By definition, if you're the Messiah, you are favored by God, not cursed. So the crucifixion, the rejection of Christ is actually a stumbling block for the Jews. And Paul says it is foolishness to Greeks, this idea of a crucified, a weak and even the resurrection of the dead. What does that, what does that have to do? Uh, what, what sort of compelling message is that? It would, in some ways, it would be sort of like, as I was thinking about this, my brother-in-law who lives just down the road uh, in this neighborhood, his car was stolen. He has one of those, he has a Hyundai, and you know how there's uh, that problem with Hyundai and Kia, certain models, where they're really easily stolen with like a a USB, I think, like that. And so there's like the Kia boys, as they call them in Milwaukee, that go around stealing cars. Well, his car was stolen. And then, like within a year, uh, someone attempted to steal his car once again. They were unsuccessful that time. Um, now, if I was him, I would never want to buy that car again. Um, and I imagine that most people who are at all aware of that issue are not going to buy that car. It's, it's been rejected. It's despised. No, no one wants it. That model could basically go to the trash. Like, who's going to buy that anymore? It would be sort of like to take, to take that model car and for someone to be like, you know what, I want to start, start a car company. Let me buy the rights to that car. Let me buy all the engineering script, all the stuff that goes into how you make that car, and I'm going to build a company founded on that specific design. It would seem absolutely ludicrous. And yet that is essentially the, the problem posed by Jesus' rejection. Jesus, a rejected Messiah, a seeming oxymoron and foolishness to, to Greek wisdom. 
And yet God has made him the very cornerstone, as Jesus will quote at the end of this passage. The stone that the the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that is our message today, that in this passage we see that Jesus, God's son, is rejected in order to become the cornerstone. I see the Oftedals are here. Welcome. I didn't expect to see you guys this, this morning, so I'm so glad to see you guys. I can't wait to meet Liam. All right. Um, we see this then in two scenes. There's two scenes of our passage. First, we see that Jesus is God's authoritative son. And second, we see the rejection of Jesus, God's son. So let's look at the first. The first we find in verses 27 to 33 of chapter 11. We see Jesus as God's authoritative son. Uh, Read with me verses 27 and 28. And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You'll remember in the previous passage, Jesus has just demonstrated remarkable authority, remarkable authority in cleansing the temple. In doing this, he is effectively claiming to have authority over the temple itself, something that only belongs to God. Now Jesus returns to the scene of the crime where he is confronted by Israel's religious leaders who challenge him about where on earth he thinks he gets the authority to do something like that, these things, as they said. And these folks that approached Jesus, uh, they they were the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, delegates from those groups, in other words. And these were the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council who held religious and even to some extent political authority over the Jewish people at that time. And so this conflict, in other words, represents a clash between Jesus and the current religious authority. They're the ones who had authority. Where do you get this authority, Jesus? Jesus is clashing with the current Jewish religious authority centered as it was in the temple. And this begins a section Um, of of, of a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders that will continue all the way uh, until the end of chapter 2, presumably, unless this changes, presumably two sermons after this one. Um, This whole series of conflicts. And in these conflicts, Jesus demonstrates his authority and his superiority over these religious leaders and the current religious system. The ruling priests were the ones who had authority to say what went on in the temple, to authorize it, like activities like the buying and the selling and the money changing that Jesus had just condemned. And above them was the Sanhedrin. Jesus presumably had no official priestly or scribal authority to do what he had just done, to lay claim over the temple like that. So the issue, in other words, was not simply what Jesus did, cleansing the temple, but what right he had to do it. By what authority does Jesus presume to do such things? Who was he to think he could do that? Where does he get off? Such authority to lay claim over the temple like that belongs to God alone, the owner of the temple, 
Was Jesus claiming some sort of prophetic or maybe even messianic kingly authority? In other words, Jesus' presumption to speak and act in the place of God is what, again, is at center stage here in this conflict. And this is the issue at heart of their question. But as we know from studying the book so far, this was only the most recent incident of Jesus acting with such authority. For instance, Jesus had already presumed the authority to forgive sins, which belongs to God alone. The authority to accept sinners, to call tax collectors, to challenge the oral tradition, or exercise lordship over something as sacred as the Sabbath itself, laying claim to prerogatives that otherwise belong only to God. Early on in the book, the first chapter even, we are told that the crowds are astonished at Jesus, for he taught them as one who had authority, it says, and not as the scribes who appealed to some other authority. Jesus binds Satan, the strong man, and he demonstrates authority over demons, casting them out. And so this is just one more example in a long line of acts where the leaders see Jesus acting with a sort of authority that they feel needs to be confronted. Read with me verse 29 and 30, how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. John was, of course, pointing to Jesus in his ministry. And so to accept John would be, by definition, to accept Jesus and what John said about Jesus. That after me comes one who is mightier than I, John said. And so Jesus is pressing them. John's baptism directs them to the very answer they're looking for about Jesus' authority. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. In other words, Jesus' counter-question is, is not some evasive maneuver to avoid their question. Rather, it contains the very answer of where his authority comes from. As the reader, we already know from reading the book, John's ministry was to prepare for the very arrival of Yahweh coming to his temple as Jesus is doing right now. Behold, the, the voice of the wilderness preparing the way of Yahweh. That was John's ministry. And it was at the baptism of John that the heavens were parted, the spirit of power descended onto Jesus, and the voice from heaven declared him to be God's son. This is where Jesus derives his authority. What Jesus does, he does as the very son of God. If the Sanhedrin wants to know where Jesus gets his authority to do these things, in other words, they need look no further than John's baptism. Verse 31 this, uh, sorry, I got, my page got flipped on me. The wind must have blown it. Um, page 31. Um, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe John? But we shall say, From man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So here's the dilemma. Jesus effectively says, tell me, where did John get his authority to baptize? Is it from heaven? Is it from God? Or is it from man? And if they say it's from God, then why don't they believe Jesus to whom John points? But if they say of man, they know 
that they're in deep trouble and they fear the people. And the people, of course, hold John to be a prophet. So we continue. Verse 33, so what do they answer, Jesus? We don't know. Very convenient. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you then by what authority I do these things. They suspend judgment, in other words. They attempt to evade the issue by not making a decision. And this would be, as we say today, I'm keeping an open mind, which is just a euphemism for not making a decision about Jesus, right? We do this very same thing today, where no one wants to oppose Jesus, or at least not very many people do, so we'll just not make a decision about him. I, I, I want an excuse not to accept who Jesus really claims to be. So neither will I tell you, Jesus says. In other words, they're not actually looking for an answer. Have you ever had that where someone is asking you a question, but it's quite clear that they're not actually looking for an answer, they're just kind of looking to make a point with their question? That's exactly what these leaders were doing. They're disingenuous. They're not actually interested in an answer. And so if they're not actually interested in the answer to their question, Jesus isn't exactly interested in providing it. We come now to the second scene. We've seen that Jesus is the authoritative son of God. Now we see that Jesus, God's son, is rejected, that rejected son, in order to become the cornerstone of God's new temple. Jesus responds to them here with a parable as verse 1 says, and Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And uh, we see that this parable is spoken against them. They rightly perceive in verse 12, uh, they, they seek to arrest Jesus, but they fear the people, for they perceived that Jesus told the parable against them. You think? Uh, right. So they left him away and they went. Now remember, this parable arises and is seeking to answer that question, where do you get this authority from? Jesus is going to provide an answer in this parable of where he gets his authority from. He is the son. Once again, now in the form of the parable, Jesus will identify himself as God's son. And in this story, the tenants of the vineyard ought to respect the authority of the son's owner. And yet they reject him. Jesus is that son, and they are the tenants who are rejecting him. Verse 1 as Jesus tells the parable, he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. Now, as Jesus mentions this vineyard, it will immediately bring to mind, for anyone who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, as these folks would have been, the Hebrew Bible, it would bring to mind Isaiah 5, which is uh, a passage in Isaiah where God describes himself as the owner of the vineyard, and the vineyard is God's people. And so the vineyard here is a picture of God's people, and that is what Jesus is playing on. The owner of the vineyard is God, and these tenant farmers, as we'll see, are the Jewish leaders, those that Jesus is directing this parable against. It is the temple authorities the leaders, those tasked with caring for God's people, the vine. And so as we see in verse 2 through 5, we see that the owner eventually sends his servants to collect at harvest time. When the season came, verse 2, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they, the tenants, they took that servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully 
And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many other servants, some they beat, and some they killed. These servants represent the Old Testament prophets that God continually sent to his people. And as in the parable they are mistreated and even times killed, that is, that is symbolic of, of course, the prophets who were rejected, even killed at times. As Jesus says in Luke 11, God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Or Jeremiah talks about how God sent the prophets to his people. And we get, we get this reflection of like, this is an immense display of God's patience with his people. That despite their sin, he doesn't just send one servant either, notice, but it's servant after servant. It's delay after delay. You'd think normally an owner, if you, if you sent a servant to go collect and they rejected that servant, you're bringing the hammer right away. But he continues to send servant after servant, showing his great patience with these tenant farmers. Jeremiah 7 reflects this when it says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And so finally, in some ways quite unexpectedly, seemingly almost ridiculously, the owner sends his son, verse 6 through 8. He had still one other, a beloved son, you want to kind of scream, like, don't do it. What are you thinking? Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. My son has authority as my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir of the vineyard. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance, the vineyard, can become ours. And so they took the son and they killed him. And they even so disdained and disgraced him that they throw his body out of the vineyard, not even giving it a proper burial. The son, of course, here is Jesus himself. And sure, the, we, we see the authority of the owner's very son that ought to have demanded their respect, just as Jesus shows up on the scene and his authority ought to demand their respect. As it says, they will respect my son, but what do the tenants do? The tenants see it at just the opposite. Instead of respecting the son, they do away, away with the heir of the property so that they can take the property for themselves. As we see, these religious leaders desire control, position, and power. Three times in this section, in chapter 11, verse 18, as Jesus is cleansing the temple, and then two times in this passage, 11.32 and 12.12, we get the mention that the leaders fear the people. The only reason they don't act is because they fear the people. They want control. They don't want to disrupt the people. As we see in the book of Acts, a common theme in the book of Acts, as this story continues in Luke's account, is that the leaders oppose the Christian community, the early Christian community, because of jealousy. You can look up every time the word jealousy shows up in the book of Acts. They, they, they have their own interests in view, in other words, just as these tenants. 
And, and, and we can experience the same thing today, right? That, that in our sin, our desire is effectively to rid ourselves of God so that we can have things our own way. If we can dispense of God, or as Friedrich Nietzsche said, if we can kill God, we have killed God, then humanity itself can become God. We can take his place as rulers of our own identity, of our own meaning, of our own ethics, of our own purpose for existence. And what is the sum total of human history if not this attempt to rid the universe of God so that we can have it for ourselves? And so God sends his son. This is an absolute demonstration of God's love. It makes me think of John 3.16, which uses very similar language. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. He gave his only son the unfathomable patience of the owner with these, temp- with these tenants is on full display that God loves the world despite their unworthiness. Like, these guys didn't deserve another chance. What farmer in his right mind would send his son to such tenants? And not only that, but, but then send his very beloved son. And the tenants kill the son. They, they reject and murder Jesus, as we'll see. And this is exactly then what the Sanhedrin delegates here respond by seeking to do in verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him after Jesus tells this parable. They begin fulfilling the parable. They begin to act out the very plot of the tenants from the story. And so how does the owner respond in verse 9? What what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to other the vineyard to others and this this idea of destroying the te- the, 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 vin- the 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 tenants seems to be uh, uh, an anticipation of what will happen in AD 70 when God will in fact destroy the religious system he will use Rome to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple which of course Jesus will eventually make quite clear when we get to chapter 13 and the giving of the vineyard to others here uh, is, is Jesus is saying that God is going to replace this temple system and bring foreigners, Gentiles, in to become a part of God's people. Even as those who will lead God's people, the vineyard will now belong to the nations, what we call the church. Now, to be clear, this is not a judgment on the Jewish people as a whole, as if Jewish people are by definition cursed and cut off from God. The landowner, you'll notice, he takes vengeance not on the vineyard itself, but on the tenants of the vineyard, the leaders. Nonetheless, we see this is part of the expansion of God's kingdom to include the Gentiles. And Jesus cites Psalm 118 here. In verse 10, he says, Have you not read, citing Psalm 118, he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone uh, that, that, that the construction workers tossed aside, in other words, it was the stone that in some ways they saw it as defective. They, they, they couldn't use it in their building project. It didn't serve their purposes. This is Jesus, the very stone that they are rejecting, that humans cast aside, that they crucify and kill. And this stone, God makes the cornerstone the cornerstone would have been a, a, the stone in a, in a building 
that you, would, that you would put in the corner, go figure, right? But you would use it to sort of construct the entire building around, to sort of set your angles. It, it would be very similar to what we think of as a foundation today. You built the entire building sort of centered around this stone. It's like the four-foot sword that's tossed in the dumpster fire, right? Someone discards it. The, the Miller Genuine light sign that gets tossed aside. The Kias and the Hyundais that no one wants. It's thrown away. No one wants it. And the imagery here, the building that, that the psalmist has in mind is specifically that of the temple. The building of God's temple. The place where God dwells with sinful humanity. An expression of the salvation that God seeks to bring. Well, he will dwell with his people by atoning for their sins. How is that building going to happen? How is that project, the temple project of salvation, going to happen? And this whole section, Mark 11 through 13, is detailing Jesus' confrontation with the current religious system, which finds its central expression in the temple. So this temple language is very interesting that the psalmist has. Jesus condemns the temple system as he cleanses the temple, which we just saw last week. And now Jesus predicts the destruction of the religious establishment in this parable. The owner will come and destroy which again, I think is anticipating the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Later, Jesus' prophecy uh, will prophesy about the temple's destruction quite explicitly in Mark 13. And remember, this passage occurs as a head of a sequence of conflicts. Each of these conflicts occurs in the temple and involving the religious authorities housed in the temple. The temple theme is is, is loaded here. As the Gospel of Mark introduced Jesus in chapter 1, he is Yahweh himself coming to his temple. And now Jesus finally, for the first time in the book, in chapter 11, he arrives at his temple and he is coming in judgment. The current temple and the religious system it represents is set for destruction, God's judgment upon it. But God is building something new, founded on the very stone that they have rejected, the very person and work of Christ. And this temple imagery, again, this is, this is conveying the idea of where God meets with sinful humanity. The Garden of Eden in Genesis is depicted as a temple, many scholars would say, and the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament are God's way of reachieving that relationship where he dwells with his people. But because of sin, a holy God cannot just merely dwell among his people with no measures taken for that holiness to meet their sin. And so what does he do? God establishes a sacrificial system which points to the way by which God's relationship with us will ultimately be achieved. The very death of Christ. This temple project that we saw initially in creation in Genesis and we see as God is is, is working in the history of Israel, this eventual salvation temple project comes to fulfillment in Christ who as the book of Hebrews says, he is the priest who offers the sacrifice, who enters into the holy place of God. He is also the sacrifice. He's the priest, but he's also the sacrifice that's offered. He makes atonement for sin. He bears our sin as an as a, as a atoning sacrifice, and thereby he is the temple. You want to know where you go to meet with God in the Old Testament? It was in symbolic form, this building with these symbolic sacrificial 
uh, the sacrifices, now the place where we go to meet with God, where sinners go to have a relationship with God, is the very person of Jesus Christ. As Acts 4 says, it cites the same passage. When the religious leaders inquire of Peter and John after Peter heals the crippled man in chapter 3 of Acts, notice what they say. They, They arrest Peter and John, and they say, By what power? Or you might say, by what authority or by what name did you do this? You notice it's a very similar question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and, and by what means this man has been healed, you want to know how this, he was healed? Let, let me make it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God vindicated, raising him from the dead. By him, this man that once was not able to walk, by by Jesus' power, by Jesus' authority, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And what's the conclusion, verse 12? This Jesus is, is, is the very foundation of God's temple project now. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the cornerstone. He is the source of salvation. He is where sinners go to have a relationship and meet their holy God. And it's not despite Jesus' rejection. It's not Jesus' rejection, but somehow God makes the best of it. It's actually through Jesus' rejection. The very thing that is a stumbling block, the very rejection of Jesus. How can a Messiah be cursed by God? As Paul says in Galatians 3, though, it's actually by becoming a curse. It's, it's, not, it's not, oh no, I need to actually like somehow explain away that Jesus was cursed. No, Jesus was in fact cursed by God, Paul says. And it's in being cursed that he achieved salvation because he was cursed for us. Jesus bore our sin on the cross for all those who trust in him. And so what we see in our passage today is that Jesus, God's son, is rejected by the current temple system precisely in order to become the cornerstone of God's new temple of salvation. God's son, Jesus, is rejected by the current temple system in order to become the very cornerstone of God's new temple of salvation. And so three uh, ways I think we can bring a passage like this to bear on us is first, we submit to Christ's authority. I think we ought to recognize that like the tenants in this parable, like the religious leaders, we have a desire, an innate desire to sort of rid ourselves, rid the universe of God and his authority. We want to be in charge. We want things to be left to ourselves We are jealous of when God comes in and and claims what is rightfully his. We desire to rid God from our personal lives. And so I think one question we can ask ourselves is, do we recognize the authority of Jesus in our life? And is there any square inch in our life in which that authority is not recognized? He is the authoritative king who arrives on the scene. And he claims authority over every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives should yield 
to his authority over it. The way we think about ethics, the way we think about our career, the way we think about what, what purpose we, we, we live towards, it should all acknowledge, it should all, it should all display a functional acknowledgement of Christ's authority over it. And if you're here today and, and you, you're, you're, you're not yet a believer, like I, I say that question to believers because we continue to want to, to seek to submit ourselves to Christ's authority, but if you're here today and you're not yet even a believer in Jesus, this question is a functional warning to you. What are you going to do with the authoritative Christ? He is Yahweh arrived. He is the God of the universe arrived in flesh. And you can't remain undecided. You can't just suspend judgment. I don't know. Jesus is making a claim, and you have to decide what will you do with him. Will you look to him and see him as God's son, the very source of salvation, or will you remain on the, fa- on the fence and effectively uh, reject him? Second, I think this uh, shapes our understanding of our calling as Christians, that we are united as living stones with this rejected stone. Uh, so if you look over at 1 Peter Psalm 18 is one of the most quoted and alluded Old Testament passages in all of the New Testament. Um, And and this section on the rejected stone comes up quite a bit as well. Another one of these references is 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2. In verse 4 and 5. It says that we have come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. There again, alluding to Psalm 118. We've come to Jesus, this living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. So, notice this verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That is the temple. Jesus, of course, is the cornerstone of the temple, but now as those who are then indwelt by his presence through the Holy Spirit, we are, we are like the other stones, the other bricks, you might say, that go up into God's construction of this end-time temple. That's how Paul talks about how the church is the temple of God, those dwelt by the Spirit. But here's the thing. If the cornerstone is a rejected stone, should we expect anything less for ourselves? We too, I think, should expect rejection that we are we are actually as as peter goes on to say in in chapter 2 verse 22 for to this we've been called because christ also suffered he he leaves us an example he leaves us a pattern for ourselves so that we might follow in his steps as those who suffer and are rejected that as those who are being built up into the temple with a rejected stone we should expect rejection as well we should expect to suffer if we are truly living for christ And so we might ask ourselves this question, how do some of the dynamics of the parable of the vineyard and the tenants show up in our world today? This sense of rejection of God. And if we are, if we find ourselves by God's grace on the side of the son, united to him in his own rejection, how does that shape our expectations? How do we respond to these realities that we continue to see in our world today? But even though we are called, I think, to suffer with Christ, thirdly, I think a passage like this provides us a deep sense of comfort. And I want you to think about the original recipients of the book of Mark. Mark, uh, his audience, 
likely the, be- the, 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 the battered and bruised, beleaguered church in the Roman Empire, marginalized by society and ravished by persecutions. And isn't that what Peter is talking about as well throughout his book? Peter is talking about how we're exiles, we're marginalized. I think that's part of what he means by saying we're united to Christ as living stones. But this would have been the circumstances of of, uh, Mark's original audience as well. And I think what a passage like this shows us is that the gospel still appears foolish today. The reality of 1 Corinthians 1, that, that a rejected stone... That's the center of the gospel. That's still a foolish message even today. But this foolishness, this very rejection of Jesus, is in fact God's ordained means by which he has made Christ the cornerstone. And so we should embrace that message. And second, in the midst of any dark circumstances Jesus' followers face, then or now, we can have real hope. Because despite how it may seem, God is still building on the foundation that was laid by that rejected stone. He, he, despite what appearances would have seen them, a crucified Messiah, dead and buried, he was vindicated. uh, Those appearances were reversed that Jesus is resurrected. And so even today, God continues to build on that foundation despite the rejection of the gospel message. As we come now to the Lord's Supper, um, one of the things that we can focus on as we take the Lord's Supper is, again, the comfort we find in the reality that Jesus has established God's true temple. That everything the Old Testament temple was pointing forward to, again, you think about a holy God dwelling among a sinful people, how on earth would God be able to dwell among a sinful people? It is through, he shows us in the Old Testament, this picture of the temple and the sacrificial systems and the mediation of the priests. Blood is needed, death is needed for a holy God to dwell among his people, for sins to actually be dealt with, for atonement to be made. And Jesus arrives, and as we saw in our passage today, he is the fulfillment of that temple project. The project that God was orchestrating in the Old Testament about dwelling with his people has come to fruition in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a celebration of that reality, cast in the, the, the categories of a sacrifice. That his, the, the bread that, and, and, and the cup that we partake is a picture of Jesus' death for us, his sacrificial death, by which we come to him as the very temple of God, the very place where sinners meet with the holy God. That's what we do. That's what we are putting on visible display today, is that we are sinners who are able to meet with a holy God through the death of Christ. That's what the bread in the cup depicts to us today, our access to a holy God through Jesus' death. Because the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation Uh, That means it's specifically for those who have placed their faith in Christ and received this salvation. And so if you're here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, we are so incredibly glad that you are with us this morning, um, but we would just ask that you would refrain from coming forward to receive the elements today. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how we're to take the Lord's Supper in a, a way that fits its meaning, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. The Lord's Supper is for all those living in repentant faith in conformity with the gospel that the Lord's Supper puts on display. So this doesn't mean that we're sinless, obviously, because the Lord's Supper assumes our sin and our need for God's grace. But it does mean that we are placing our faith in Christ and we are striving to follow him 
in repentance, albeit imperfectly. And so if that's you this morning, we invite you to come forward.